Father God, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that is in every word of your word. We thank you that it points us to Jesus. And we pray blessing on Matthew as he shares this morning. May he draw our attention to you, Jesus, and give us fresh and renewed vision and understanding and encouragement and inspiration and challenge as to what it is you want to speak to us through the presence of your spirit. May our hearts be open to receive your word, that it might take root and grow and flourish and bear fruit fruit. Pray blessing on Matthew. Fill him again with your spirit, God, in your name. Amen. Thanks, man. So uh, thank you so much again for inviting me and welcoming me uh, to Newcastle Baptist Church. And looking at this topic, uh, secular culture, which is something that Paul does so here in Acts before uh, I get to that, I wonder if you've ever watched the American Office before. It's on the screen there. Uh, hands up if you've, if you've watched it. Oh, not, not, not that many of you guys. I, I'm sure you've maybe watched the British one before. Uh, but even if you've not seen it, that's totally okay. You'll hopefully still uh, get the point I'm trying to make. Um, you've probably at least heard of it before. Um, a lot of my students are very into the office, which is why like, I know a um, and it's basically a mockumentary series. Uh, and what that means, it's a mock documentary of fictional events, fictional about daily life of a uh, in a character called Angela. And Angela is And it's like, yay, representation. And it's like, yay, representation for Christians. Isn't it? Uh, from the perspective of the secular world, Stereotypical, and I wonder what stereotypical Christian looks like to worlds. What would you think? Maybe you'd hope that it was somebody marked with love and grace, or somebody that is kind and lives with integrity. But apparently, Angela is none of those things. Angela is the complete opposite. She's a bit judgmental, uh, a bit mean. In fact, there's an episode in The Office where uh, characters Jim uh, asks several people uh, what the free boats would bring uh, on a desert island. And Angela, being the Christian that she is, her first is the Bible. And she says it with her eyes rolled back, just kind of like being like, what? this is such a silly question. You've only got two others. And so the next one, The the Purpose Driven Life. Uh, It's also a great book, too. Uh, And then Jim's like, oh, great, name name a third book then. And Angela's just like, refuses, she's like, whatever. And clearly isn't interested in the conversation at all. And so uh, another uh, character, and it says, oh, I read the Chico in thoughts of somebody bringing that to a desert island. And so she chimes in and says, okay, my third book will be The Da Vinci Code but I'm going to take it and burn it. And a picture, isn't it? She has such harsh responses to her friends. I think this kind of goes to demonstrate her judgmental attitude towards the people asking her these questions. And I think it highlights the challenge we face here today as Christians in the West. You see, the perception of many unchurched people is that we, as Christians, are unfortunately seen as judgmental, 
hypocritical, even bigoted in what we believe and have to say as Christians. And so, as part of the problem rather than the solution, part of the problem rather than the solution. And that's not surprising, I think, because the UK is becoming an increasingly secular country, isn't it? I mean, a few months back, uh, we had the results of the national census, and it officially revealed to us that the UK is no longer a Christian country, with only 46.2% of people actually saying they're Christians. And so, friends, there's a bigger need than ever before here in the UK for us to know how to engage with a secular world. But where on earth do we start? I think the thought of uh, engaging with secular culture or sharing our faith with people like that can often just be scary. And it makes us feel utterly helpless because we don't even know where to start. And often we just feel so poorly equipped to face these things or answer big questions people have about Christianity. And that's uh, something that my students often struggle with. And I know I have as well before. And so I think the temptation is then for us as Christians today, rather than boldly proclaiming the gospel like we should, we're tempted instead to do two things. Number one, to, to simply just blend into the culture around us, to cease living distinctively as Christians and just compromise our faith to simply fit in with the world. Or secondly, we can pull back We can pull back from the world and form like a holy huddle as Christians and have nothing to do with the world. We can be our little happy Christian community here, and those non-Christians, they can just go have fun over there. But today, we see a third approach in Paul the Apostle. And what is Paul's approach? Paul's approach is not only does he remain distinct as a Christian, but he isn't a to boldly engage with his non-Christian peers, even if he has to do it on his own. And so in today's passage, in Acts 17, we see Paul engaging with perhaps the brightest, most intelligent people of his days, these people in the city of Athens. But before we dive in and unpack this, why don't we just kind of set the scene uh, a little bit? Um, and a, a couple of verses before, you'll see that Paul had been preaching in this place called Berea uh, for quite a while. Uh, and there were some people who really didn't like what Paul had to say. In fact, they really didn't like him. That They came all the way from this other city, Thessalonica, these Jewish just to start it and us to riot against Paul and his companions. That's a lot of dedication. Case after Paul. And so, of course, then, for Paul's own sake, he's forced to be escorted to receive. He's unfortunately forced to leave behind his companions, Silas and Timothy. And so, Paul is all alone in the city of Athens, in this city. Um, and what, what does he do in the city? He around. And here's a little picture of what it might have looked like back in the day. Um, uh, up Top is the Acropolis, which is, uh, you can actually that today uh, in Greece if you go to Athens. And the Areopagus is this little court at the front where people would often debate and have these great discussions. Anymore, it's a little hill there. And go to the next one. That's actually uh, a picture that I took when I was in Athens. 
where, where, there, where Paul, Acts 17 sermon, is written in Greek on that little hill where the Areopagus would have been. It's pretty cool. Uh, unlike a lot of other older Bible places, the, the city of Athens is still around, thriving, um, and it's a, such a bustling, bustling city. And, but what can we actually learn from Paul's venture here in There's a lot to unpack, but in the next 20 or 30 minutes I uh, have today, I want to unpack three main things with you guys today. Uh, the three H's, as I'd like to describe it as. Uh, number one, the hearts behind evangelism. Number two, the how of evangelism. And number three, the hope that we share in evangelism. And that's how we'll break down what Paul has to say to us today. And so why don't we start with the heart. You see, as soon as Paul arrives to Athens, like any person wandering around, the, he begins to wander around and probably sightseeing. You can kind of Paul looking for the marketplace smelling the fruit of all the nice food. If you've never had Greek food before, it's really good. I highly recommend it. Uh, but as he's doing his little sightseeing tour, as he's taking a break from his preaching, he begins to notice a few things. He notices and sees things that would have appalled any Jewish person back then. These statue of idols, left, right, and center. No matter where you go, he sees these idols. But what does Paul feel when he sees this? We see this in verse 16, don't we? It says he's distressed, as the NIV translates it. And it's easy to read this and think, is, is Paul just feeling a little bit judgmental here? Looking at all these pagan Greeks so lost in their ways and shows, shows up with a spiritual chip on his shoulder coming into Athens with that sort of air of self-righteousness and hypocrisy we saw in Angela in the office. But that's not what Paul's heart is here. Uh, I think the English Standard Version, or the ESV, uh, renders this phrase a little bit more accurately. Uh, it translates this phrase to, his spirit was provoked in him. Uh, and the original Greek word is this word called paroxysm, which describes this sense of being provoked, a sense of uh, feeling anger, not in a sort of negative sense, but in a positive, righteous sense. Uh, and there's this really great commenta- uh, Bible commentator called John Gills uh, who actually preached uh, in the same church as Charles Spurgeon a hundred years prior. And this is what he has to say about Paul's feelings here. He says, Paul's soul was troubled and his heart was grieved. He was exasperated and provoked to the last degree. His heart was hot within him. He had a burning fire in his bones and was weary with forbearing and could not stay. Paul's soul was troubled and his heart was grieved. And I think Gil here captures what Paul is feeling in this very moment as he looks around. That Paul deeply cared about the people in Athens, even when their beliefs seemed a world away from his own Jewish background. And of course, right, Paul was well-versed in the Jewish scriptures, he would have known exactly how God dealt with his own people's idolatry in the past. Idols that led to punishments and wrath. And so he knows these idols should not be taken lightly. But he isn't provoked here in his spirit because it offends him and his Jewishness. But actually the sight of these idols provokes Paul because Paul is acutely aware of what God's heart was 
for his own people when they struggled with idolatry. And in fact, there's so many passages we could look at in the Old Testament, but here's one in Jeremiah chapter 13. And this is uh, God speaking to his people. They're about to be punished for their idolatry. If you do not listen, I will secrets because of your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly, overflowing with tears because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. My eyes will weep bitterly, overflowing with tears. Can you picture that? God weeping for his people because they refuse to listen, because they can't turn away from their own idols. And in fact, in Second uh, Peter, Peter says, God doesn't want anyone to perish or everyone to come to repentance. Not wanting anyone to perish, everyone to come. In other words, I think God's heart for his people is that his heart breaks for every soul that is lost. Every soul that doesn't turn, that doesn't turn to repentance. And I'm sure maybe we've probably experienced a little bit of that in our lives. Seeing our closest ones or our close friends who aren't. And imagine the, the thought of them passing away one day without even knowing God. Oh, would that feel? Or what that feeling would feel for you. And whatever that feeling is in your heart right now, you see, God would feel that infinitely more. <laughs> Not just for those around us, but for us as well as individuals. And why does God feel like that? Because he loves every person more than we could ever love them. And as Christians, are we not called to love like Christ has loved us? And so I think to love like God, to also have our hearts break for the lost. Very same spirit, the stressing heartbreak Paul experiences. <laughs> Looking around all the idols in Athens. A heart of harsh judgment, but one of love. One that is heartbroken at the sights of these people being so lost, so far away from God. And I think this heart is the heart that provokes and motivates Paul to share the story of this one God who can save us from ourselves. And the reason I start with this is because it's so, so important we get this right, that we have a heart for evangelism first. Because if not, it'll sometimes feel like a chore. It'll feel like a bit of a bore, or sometimes it'll even feel like we're just trying to win an argument rather than trying to win people's hearts for God. And we'll be quick to treat people like a project and not actually show any any genuine love or concern for them. And so, friends, it's with this heart that Paul goes on and is spurred to the gospel in Athens. And that he does. He goes uh, reasons in the synagogue and the God-fearing verse 17. And eventually, it picks up the interest of these stoic Epicurean philosophers who begin to debate with Paul. And to the point where they're so interested in what Paul has to say that they decide to invite him to the Areopagus, this place, this court where uh, ideas were discussed and debated. And it's here in this setting, in this little court, 
Paul's sermon begins, and we'll be spending the rest of our time looking at and examining how, how Paul evangelizes. And in Paul's I think there are a few observations we can make. First, Paul identifies with the culture. He identifies with them. He connects and engages with what they love and are passionate about. And as you can see, he actually takes so much time to carefully observe their culture, as he says in verse 23, just so he can understand where they're coming from, just so he can identify what are they interested in, what are they passionate about, what do they care about, so he can speak on their own terms. And I wonder how often we can answer those very same questions about our own non-Christian friends. Often our temptation when we shy away from the secular world is that we become so worried about conforming to the world that not only are we, do we remove ourselves from the world, we also become so out of touch with those people that surrounds us with. Friends, there's a difference between being conforming and being informed. And it's important, it's important for us to be informed about the people around us so that we can communicate the gospel in a way people actually understand. It's so easy to kind of whip out a Bible passage or just use loads of big Christian words that non-Christians have no idea what they mean. And for example, imagine if I started preaching to you in Chinese today. You guys would just be scratching your heads. You're like, what's this guy saying? You know, in Chinese, like, I would be saying really good stuff, or hopefully good stuff, uh, and all these amazing truths about Jesus, but you'd all fail to understand it. It would just go over your heads. If we don't identify well with those around us, that's what it can be like when we speak about Jesus to those around us. And friends, Paul doesn't make this mistake. He makes sure to do his research. And so he addresses the Athenians, and by doing that, he demonstrates that he's listened to them well and understands their culture and what their culture longs for. And he doesn't do this to just attack them. You see, he actually affirms and commends them for their interest in religion. In fact, he even uses one of the objects of their worship, an altar to the unknown god. What a silly thing, right? Unknown god statue. And the Greeks did this because they wanted to make sure they didn't miss out on one random god that they accident and offend this god, which is why they built this statue in the first place. But clearly they care about this idea of God or gods. And Paul identifies with them, not only so he can resonate with his audience's culture, but so he can challenge their culture in the places where it contradicts the gospel. And the Athenian culture kind of contradicts the gospel in two main ways. Um, As we looked at earlier, uh, there are two main types of philosophers here, the Stoics and the Epicureans. Views of the Stoics, they had a pretty small view of who God was. They believed that he could be contained, and he was, he was contained within creation, and there was nothing of God outside of creation. And what that means is that to find contentment, people needed to live virtuous lives or what they saw as living in harmony with nature. 
And in practice, this just meant that people simply had to accept things as they were because their gods, because they were part of nature, didn't actually have any power to change or do anything or to save us. Their gods that they believed in were bound by the laws of nature just as we are. And so Paul begins by boldly challenging this view. He shows that this God that he is preaching about isn't a pathetic, impotent, tame God. He isn't a created thing or a figment of somebody's imagination or the end of some sort of philosophical debate. But this is a living God who made and created everything. As a result, transcends all of creation because he was the one who made it. In fact, he doesn't need us but instead we are utterly dependent on him. In other words, this wasn't just some sort of another demigod or pantheon of Greek idols, but the God of all gods. In other words, what Paul is trying to say and teach the Stoics was that God is bigger than they could ever think or imagine. And so this takes Paul to challenge their second contradiction, the, the view of the Epicureans, And so the Epicureans, on the other hand, they had a very impersonal view of God. They did believe in gods, but just felt that they didn't really care about us. And so uh, the way you live then, if they didn't care about us, is just live a life of enjoyment and pleasure rather than worrying about life. Just do whatever you want. Enjoy life until it ends. And, of course, with Paul's massive view of God— it would be really easy for the Epicureans to see this God as even more impersonal, even more unapproachable. But Paul shows that deep down inside, God has given us this inner yearning and longing to seek after him. An inner yearning and longing to seek after him. And this longing was given for a purpose. As Paul says, that they might seek after the real God and personally come to know him. To seek after him and personally come to know him. And so contrary to the Epicurean view, God, this God isn't unapproachable. He's not unknowable or disinterested in what we have to do in our lives. But rather, God is not too far to be known. Yes, he is bigger than we can imagine, but he is not too far to be known. He longs for us to seek and to know him. And Paul illustrates this not by quoting scripture, but instead he quotes from two Greek philosophers. And these say, For in him we live and move and have our being. We are indeed his offspring. And this stands out for a really big thing, is often we can be so quick to throw out these Bible verses, but non-Christians, they don't see Scripture as their word of authority. And Paul acknowledges this for these philosophers. He knows that they're not going to listen to Scripture because they don't even know what it is. And so he speaks on their terms using their own poets against them. But why should this point actually matter? Because it shows we are intrinsically connected to God. We as he are made in his divine image. That's the case. If we are made in his divine image and made to be in relationship with him, then it means he 
source of life, and he deeply cares for us and longs for us to know him because he knows that true delight is not found in these little man-made idols, but true delight and satisfaction is found in him. And so to summarize the way he challenges these two contradictions, he's basically saying this God is bigger than you can ever imagine, more personal than you ever thought. And isn't that an amazing truth for us today? And so with these two things, Paul finally confronts them then with their need to come back, to return, to repent to God. You see, if this view is true about a personal and powerful God, then it's absolutely absurd to think that God is simply a figment of artistic imagination, like the gold, silver, or stone God Paul found all over the city. It's ridiculous, isn't it, to think that these idols could provide satisfaction. So what Paul is saying here is the answer you're looking for isn't these man-made idols, but in this true living God. And he's calling to us. In fact, he's not like those pantheon of Greek gods who are just simply violent, jealous, greedy, and capricious. Things on a whim and ultimately indifferent to humanity. But in fact, he is a just God that will one day return and restore the world through his righteous judgment and justice. He will one day fix the world because he cares. He's not indifferent. And that's what Paul is trying to point these Athenians to. That's great for them, but what does this mean for us today? How might we apply some of these principles to engage with secular culture today? Well, you might not have idols of gold, silver, or stone. But in the stupidity of our sin, we have other idols that we think can satisfy us, don't we? As children, we thought it might be that bag of sweets that we begged our parents for, or that new toy we wanted for Christmas. Students, we sought satisfaction in good grades, athletic accomplishments, or maybe being the life of the party. As adults, we think that finding true love, being successful, or ticking off our bucket list will fulfill us. But listen here for a second to this actor, Jim Carrey, who you might have heard of, big uh, comedian, pretty famous. And he's basically ticked off his bucket list because he's so successful. And in fact, he actually won this, gold, this uh, award called the Golden Globe Award, an award that many actors have on their bucket list. And he's not just won this award once, he's won it twice. Uh, and in fact, uh, in the Golden Globe Awards in 2016, Carrie uh, took the stage to basically introduce the nominees for the best motion picture comedy. And in a very typical Jim Carrey manner, cracks a couple of jokes about what it's like to be a two-time award-winning actor. And as he begins to speak, his speech begins to gradually turn into this painfully honest critique of our own life's search for satisfaction and the emptiness of trying to fulfill our dreams. And this is what he says. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. Oh, sir, I dream about being three-time Golden Globe-winning actor Jim Carrey. 
because then I would be enough. It would finally be true, and I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. I could stop this search, this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. And Jim Carrey, he's not a Christian, but yet he's saying some very true things, isn't he? That no matter where you search for, no matter where you search for satisfaction, nothing will fulfill you. And this is what Paul is saying about God. If God has designed us, if that act is true, and he has designed us to be in relationship with him, the source of life, it's not surprising then that we try to live our own lives without him. We simply leave ourselves with a God-shaped hole in our hearts. You see, that's the reason why our hearts to be satisfied without God. Because we often try to fill this hole in our hearts with other things, with the wrong things, searching for them in the wrong places. And this isn't just us here in the room, but every single person. We all want the gift rather than the gift giver. Even though it's the gift giver who can truly fill this gaping hole in our hearts. And first, just think about how offensive and heartbreaking this is to God. Imagine at Christmas time, you're with your grandparents or maybe with your grandchildren, right? Uh, who you deeply love, uh, who deeply love you, and, and they come to maybe drop you a present, right? And they travel really far to get to you to give you this present. And all you care about is the present that they have to give. And you take that present and then you in their face, not even saying thank you, just ignoring them, letting them freeze outside in the cold. That's harsh, isn't it? That's cold. And I think often that's how we treat God when we turn to other things, when we turn to other idols. And so I think it's no surprise then that Paul says we all should be judged for turning to these idols. We've known God, and yet we suppress this, this knowledge of him and push him down and instead creates our own version, our own idea of what God looks like. And of course, if Paul just ended his sermon here, that would be pretty heartbreaking. It would be pretty depressing. But beautifully, friends, that's not the end of the story. The climax of Paul's sermon is not God's judgment, but the hope we have in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. And of course, this is what the Stoics and Epicureans wanted to hear about after all. And I think, you know, we often just reflect on the resurrection story at Easter time. And sometimes I think it's easy for us to forget the significance of what the resurrection means for us day to day for our faith. You see, the resurrection is a literal, physical, datable event that proves every word the Bible says is true. That's why Paul even says that this is proof. This is proof. And and friends, the, the Christian faith isn't some sort of wonderful existential experience that people wrote down because it made them feel good, right? Even though they knew it didn't happen. That's, that's in theological terms what you call absolute rubbish. 
But, but in fact, Paul even says in his letters to the Corinthian church that Jesus was not raised from the dead. Our faith is futile. Our faith is futile. In other words, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, Christianity is just a waste of time. It's a pointless faith with no purpose. I've just wasted my breath for the past few minutes. I've wasted all or spending time writing this talk, and you've wasted your time showing up here on a Sunday morning to church. The disciples died for nothing. And you see, friends, if a movement was based on such a bold claim like the resurrection of Jesus, how on earth would it have taken off if it was just based off a lie? In fact, it would have just taken two seconds for either the Romans or the Jewish authorities to whip out Jesus' dead body to shut down the early church. But friends, the fact that we're here today, that we're meeting here today, goes to show us that Jesus did physically rise from the grave. And what that means, friends, is that this hope we offer to the world, it's not some sort of wishful thinking not some sort of wishful thinking that's just going to make people feel a little bit better about themselves, but a genuine hope of true life that we can all hold on to. A genuine hope that we can boldly and confidently share, knowing that it is going to change people's lives. A genuine hope that we can that we with us through the storms as we engage with secular culture, search for satisfaction, or even in the face of death itself. And friends, this is why I that the gospel of Jesus serves as the best completion to every single person's story. Because of this hope in the resurrection that is true. And friends, do you truly believe that? Do we truly believe that? Because I think if we did, we share but be confident, confident that this hope can truly change the hearts of those around us. And so this takes us to the end of Paul's sermon. After he identifies with them, he challenges them and then calls them to repentance and the hope that is in Jesus' resurrection. There are three responses that happen afterwards here in verse 32. There are some people who look on contempt, who sneer and laugh at Paul. This is ridiculous. And of course, as Christians, even if we share our faith as well as Paul did, some people are going to laugh at us. Some people are going to mock us. And I think that, for me, that's kind of encouraging, actually, that Paul the Apostle wasn't successful in every evangelism attempt he made. He didn't convert everybody here in one go. But there are other people as well. There are some people who are curious, who want to hear more about what Paul has to say. And sometimes what we do when we share our faith with those around us, it's not necessarily to convert them straight away, but to bring them into the next step, to get them to want to hear more. And of course, some amazingly are committed, committed to Jesus and want to follow him. And we see two named people, Dionysus and uh, Damaris, and of course a number of other people. And I wonder which of these three responses feel like you today. Where are you this one? Are you ready to meet God anew? And of course, some of us here tonight, today, not tonight, this morning, uh, 
feel that we are far from him. Or he is not far from any of us, even if he, he feels And so what we need to do then, to turn away from our own sin, to come to him to discover what true satisfaction, true delight truly is. And if we do that, I hope, pray, confidently and boldly share this hope that we've experienced to those around us. Let's pray for us before I invite the band up to come and sing it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this example that Paul gives us of how to engage with those around us, even if they have no Christian background whatsoever. My brothers and sisters here in Newcastle Baptist, Lord, that, Lord, that they can have this heart to save the lost, to look at this passage and know how to communicate the gospel well, so that they can share this great hope that we as Christians have. And may this hope give them great confidence as they go forward in their day-to-day, whether they're going, uh, to work in the office, um, to bring their children to school, whatever it might be. Help them to just bring you and your word and your hope to those around them everywhere they may go. So yeah, we just thank you for this time. In your precious name we pray. Amen.